0: Welcome to a special inaugural episode of Good Heavens. I'm your host, Daniel Ray. This will be a first in what will hopefully become a monthly series on Christian apologetics. In addition to the regular astronomy and cosmology topics that Wayne and I already discuss, we are adding this second monthly broadcast in hopes of reaching a wider audience. So what is apologetics? Why do we need it? Why do we need to talk about it? Well, the word comes from 1 Peter 3.15, where we read, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The Greek word for defense is apologia, from which the term apologetics is derived. Now, given the multitudinous variety of believers who have ever lived and who are now living— There is no one-size-fits-all method for how we are to give a defense for our faith in Christ. Sometimes apologetics as a formal discipline can get caught up in the technical questions of what is the best approach to giving a defense, and we can easily lose sight of the bigger picture, that is, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, bringing glory to God, and enjoying Him forever. As Christians, when we are unified in our witness and love for Christ and each other, God is glorified. And since the heavens declare the glory of God, and, as Isaiah tells us, that the whole earth is filled with God's glory, our defenses should take into consideration how all things in heaven and on earth fit together and point to Jesus himself. Consider for a moment the Roman poet Virgil. In the opening lines of Georgics, he begins to sing about the goodness of farming and animal husbandry. Quote, What makes the cornfields glad? Beneath what star it befits to upturn the ground, Macenus? and clasp the vine to her elm, the tending of oxen and the charge of the keeper of a flock, and all the skill of thrifty bees. Of this I will begin to sing. You, O bright splendors of the world, who lead on the rolling year through heaven. End quote. What ties all of that together? What is it about nature that makes a pagan poet want to break forth into singing about agriculture? Well, as the psalm about creation extols, quote, praise him, sun and moon, Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Praise the Lord from earth, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, End quote. Of course, our apologetic defenses will never be exhaustive. No one person can possibly answer every single objection or question a person might ask. But we have the whole of the heavens and the earth at our disposal for giving a defense for the gospel and the hope that is within us. We are not called to give exhaustive defenses, we cannot, but gentle ones. And our defenses can include anything, poetry, art, music, science, nature, you name it whatever the spirit of christ may bring to mind so long as the chief aim of our defense is the glory of god the entirety of the heavens and the earth were created for his glory and show forth his invisible attributes genesis 1 psalm 8 psalm 19 psalm 148 as quoted above john 1 acts 424 and acts 1724 romans 118 through 20 colossians 1 hebrews 1 and revelation 411 We must reacquaint ourselves with seeing how all things work together and fit together for the glory of God in Christ, renewing our minds about Jesus, about creation, about our culture, and about the Word of God. On this episode of Good Heavens, I am actually interviewed by Joel Setekes of the Think Institute in Chicago. This is a recording of his podcast on which I appear as a guest Joel is a Christian thinker, biblical apologist, philosopher, founder of the Think Institute, former pastor, and current partnering church catalyst with Church Movements, a ministry of Crew City. Joel partners with churches to connect people to Jesus through gospel engagement and answers and develop leaders in theology and the biblical perspective. Proud to call Chicago his home, Joel has worked in the fields of Christian education, worldview, evangelism, apologetics, and leadership since 2009 including serving as a Bible teacher at Chicago Hope Academy, student ministry pastor at Grace Point Church in Plainfield, Illinois, and interim lead pastor at Park Community Church's Forest Glen, Chicago location. He has spoken and guest taught at various student events, retreats, interfaith panels, churches, groups, and community organizations. He regularly runs live video and in-person apologetics training and facilitates discussion groups for Christian, non-Christian dialogue. So join Joel and I on this special apologetics episode of Good Heavens as we discuss the cosmos, apologetics, and Christ.
1: Welcome to the Think Podcast. This is Joel Sedeckes. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the works of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. So it sounds like the more we study the heavens or outer space, the more we ought to come to glorify God. We might even expect that modern scientists would be the most devout believers, the most devout Christians. And yet, many of those in the scientific fields, uh, many of the scientific fields are dominated today by unbelief, by unbelievers. And so my guest wants today want my guest today wants to change that situation and wants to show everyone how astronomy and astrophysics, which unravel the mysteries of the universe, bring glory to God. His book, The Story of the Cosmos, recently debuted on Amazon and made quite a big splash. He also hosts a podcast called Good Heavens. Daniel Ray, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Joel. How are you today? How do you pronounce your last name properly?
1: set a case and it's set a, a case set a case down
0: set a case okay cool yes well thank you joel we uh we connected on twitter and uh i'm looking forward to chatting with you it sounds like we have a lot in common in terms of what our interests are and uh thank you so much for i'm glad we could get harvest house could get you a book too that was really cool
1: that was very cool and i've got my copy right here with oh, good you. i As- do too i'm
0: I'm ready to go. So if you want to reference page numbers, I've (laughs) I've got it in front of me too.
1: Wonderful. Well, you are a former school teacher and a lay astronomer. You earned your master's in Christian apologetics from Houston Baptist University. And in your thesis, you explored C.S. Lewis, right? The contemporary relevance of his imagination in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. How How did you come to be so interested in the cosmos and in cs lewis
0: well briefly my interest in the universe began with carl sagan when i was 11 or 12 years old when carl sagan uh cosmos debuted on pbs in the 1980s or early 1980 Uh, and i was 12 i was fascinated by how he was able to tell a story of of the cosmos um and i'd always been enraptured by that i didn't know anything about the materialism that lay behind uh the cosmos is very implicit in certain places, very explicit in other places. But as a 12 year old, you're just like, ooh, pretty pictures and the universe. And it was just always drawing me uh, to that. How I got to the degree program, it was uh, my last teaching job was in uh, 2013, 2014. I was a middle school teacher preparing to teach English. um, And uh, part of the curriculum included some Narnia Chronicles. Hmm. And I had had read them, um, but I wanted to brush up on them. And so I was browsing for a a reference book on, uh, basically some, something, some background for, for Narnia. And then I found, uh, I ran across uh, a 2008 book written by, um, let me see if I can bring him up here, written by my uh, professor there on the left, uh, Dr. Michael Ward. Uh, Dr. Ward was my thesis advisor. Um, and he wrote this book called Planet Narnia. And, uh, he, I, I just, I was enthralled by the book. It was absolutely amazing to me. Um, that, uh, I was just, it was, it's a whole nother podcast to talk about how moving it was, but it was literally a life-changing, uh, book. And so after my, after my year at, um, uh, the teaching the middle school, I was so enthralled with the book. I just wanted to come to HBU and study under, uh, Michael. And so I, according to Michael, I was the first person to do a thesis on his book and I'll bring it up here. Here's the book. Uh, Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Uh, and just for your listeners, I will be referencing images. I'll try to be able to speak to them. Um, but if on, on the audio version of this, you won't see these things. But uh, I'll try to, to, to talk in such a way that I, you know what I'm talking about without having to look at the pictures. But um, that's the book that I studied. And, and basically, it was uh, Dr. Ward Believes. And... It's in ten years since, eleven years since it's been confirmed pretty much by scholars and and Lewis aficionados that uh, Doctor Ward has uncovered what Lewis what was going on behind the Chronicles of Narnia aside from the the, the Christian obvious Christian overtones. Uh, Doctor Ward believed that uh, Lewis was incorporating symbolism uh, from medieval cosmology uh, into the atmosphere of the whole entire series, and so each book would represent. Um, all the mythology, all the literature, all the imagination of of the seven heavens from the medieval cosmos, and so I did my thesis on that, and then took it one step further. Really, Doctor Ward's challenge was: if my book is true, uh, what do you do with it? What is, what's the apologetic relevance? How do we how do we uh, get this back into the culture? How how do we carry on Lewis's imagination, love of of Psalm nineteen, and Love of medieval cosmology and what relevance does this have for us today? So that was the challenge for my thesis, and so uh, out of out of the thesis um, came the uh, event uh, that we held a couple of years ago. This event, uh, the astrophysics and fantasy, where we brought together a Hubble Space Telescope scientist and uh, my thesis advisor, uh, Dr. Michael Ward. We um, it was really an amazing event. I met a Hubble scientist. Um, during the course of my master's degree. And uh, he was interested in what I was writing about and uh, wanted a copy of my thesis. And so when I finished my thesis, I gave, of course, I submitted it to Dr. Ward. And then I also gave it to uh, Dr. Anton kokomor who is there on the right. He is a, a veteran astrophysicist with the Hubble Space Telescope and the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, they came together on the stage at one night at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And they presented, we had a packed house uh, talking about Narnia, Lewis and the Hubble Space Telescope, and from this event, uh, the book that you hold before you uh, was born. This was the Genesis, and it was wonderful because we had children there, we had parents there, we had older people there, we had kids. We, it was just, it was the kind of audience that we wanted to reach, and we saw the, we saw the magnitude and the impact that every that the that the event had, and it was pin drop silent in there the whole time. I mean, it was just wonderful, and so we we knew we needed to get this book done, and so we did.
1: Wow it's a subject that's fascinated me since I was a child, since I was really young. In fact, I remember, well, I remember being in fifth grade and so I'll age myself right now. I was in fifth grade and I I guess it was the, I'd finished fifth grade and it was the summer of 1995. And I remember that National Geographic had just come out with their wide field planetary camera pictures um, it was mm. the wide field or the deep field pictures.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's the
1: ones and you reference it on page nine in, in the book. Yes, sir. And it's got it's what they did was they aimed a the camera into what looked like an empty section of space where there was nothing there in the Big Dipper. And the pictures that they took as they magnified it up, as they as they blew up the picture and and you know, took this deep and wide picture was you see all these specks of light and as you look closer you see that they've got that they're not just specks but they're spirals and you realize you're not looking at stars you're looking at galaxies each of which has millions of stars Mm -hmm. and i remember seeing these images and there's this one distinct memory that i have where i'm walking from my house to my friend my friend jeff's house who's about four blocks away and i remember looking up at the the sky having seen those pictures and being Daniel, the, the emotion that I felt was, it was a mixture of awe and it was a little bit of terror in just knowing that above me in that black sky, there were millions and millions and I didn't, my, my brain couldn't even comprehend it, still can't how vast the universe is. And I remember feeling a sense of, it was almost a sense of dread and it was maybe one of the closest times that you know I've experienced what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, where it's not where it's this this awe bordering yeah. on on um, a dread of how of how vast and and uh, amazing He is. So, yes. is that what you're trying to get across in this book? What would you say is the the big idea of your book, The Story of the Cosmos?
0: Well, uh, you you hit the nail on the head, Joel. The basic problem with what we're having today is is sky blindness um, that in most modern metropolises we we don't even see but a handful of stars um, if you're in New York City I had an image up there a minute ago of New York City Times Square uh, a black patch of sky above times so the lights of Times Square there's absolutely no stars visible in the in the photograph um, but this is generally the problem if you're in a large metropolis like you are in Chicago or Dallas or New York or Los Angeles, you, you don't see the stars. You just don't see them. Um, and so, a lot of times, it, and Michael Ward, uh, my professor who does a chapter in this, talks about this very problem that we've we've substituted images for the encounter with the real thing. And so, there's nothing wrong with these images. They're fantastic and they're awe inspiring, as you've noticed. But what it what what combined for you, as you've explained it so well, was looking up into that region and experiencing in the flesh, incarnately, experiencing what is above you. And it is a deep kind of fear. that There is a deep kind of like almost like a holiness or of what the psalmist says in Psalm 19 that you read just a few minutes ago. There are no words. It, it's more of a, a, a deep-seated experience that you encounter. And so one of the things that we want people to do with this uh, book, Joel, is to to have that kind of encounter, to encourage that kind of encounter um, in not just a scientific way, because I think in a lot of ways, in the last 500 years, the church has slowly surrendered nature in general to materialistic science. Um, you know, astronomy began in earnest with Copernicus, Kepler, uh, Tycho Brahe, Galileo, William Herschel, uh, Isaac Newton. These were Christian men who took their Christianity seriously and took the heavens seriously. And they investigated these things with the knowledge that you've just expressed, the eloquence, the beauty, the wonder of the heavens themselves. And so we don't just narrow it down to science, but we we have good science. We have scientists, but we have uh, philosophers. We have William Lane Craig and Paul Gould, uh, Dr. Paul Gould, uh, Michael Ward, who's a a Lewis scholar and a literary scholar. We have Holly Ordway. So we are addressing addressing a multifaceted perspective on the cosmos that the church has not really come up with yet Um, since Carl Sagan. We've just not had an all-encompassing experience, the heavens through art, experience it through literature, experience it through different forms of human expression. Everything that tries to capture what you just so eloquently said, um, this awe and wonder is not just science. Uh, There's poetry, there's art, course, there's music. We don't have a chapter on music. I would love to have had that, but uh, it's a multifaceted approach to the universe that, that addresses the whole person and not just a narrow niche science to it. Um, and so up on the screen right now is the deep field, the, whole, the Hubble Ultra uh, Deep Field that you described just a few minutes ago. Uh, and I give a presentation when I talk about the book. Um, there's now what they call the Hubble Extreme Deep Field, which is just they've added more light uh, from different different wavelengths of light to the image. They now refer to it as the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. And uh, just to break down what you had described, the deep field is 800 separate Hubble images, uh, 400 Earth orbits to get these images, 12 different wavelengths of light, yielding 10,000 galaxies. Now, you had talked about being outside and looking up at the sky at the time and making the correlation. But the spot of sky in which those 10,000 galaxies appear is no bigger than the head of a pin held out at arm's length. So how many, uh, you know, heads of pins would it take to cover the sky just above your head, let alone, you know, encircle the earth? Uh, It is unfathomable and beyond words. And so we don't just deal with the science of the gas and the matter and the energy, but we deal with the awe and the beauty and the aesthetics and the philosophy and the art and everything else that the heavens have influenced uh, to give it a a, a much more of a holistic approach to understanding the cosmos.
1: Now, you mentioned some of the different contributors. Uh, Mm -hmm you know, William Lane Craig and, um, Paul Gould, who co-edited it with you, correct?
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, um, and you've got uh, brother, Guy uh, Consolmagno, and I'm just, um, when you were choosing your authors and your contributors for the book, did you have topics in mind that you wanted and you thought, you know, this would be the perfect person, you know, William Lane Craig, um, would be the perfect person to write on this subject or was it we we picked the authors first and then whatever they wanted to write about, or, or, you know, what was the, how'd you make the connection between these different authors and the subjects that they wrote on?
0: Well, that's a great question. And it really came together uh, rather remarkably. Uh, When I was looking for, so the event I described at the outset, uh, I was charged by Michael and Anton, when I made the suggestion to them offhandedly that they should do a, a presentation together, they both surprisingly agreed to it and then tasked me to make it happen. So I was like, well, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? Don't you have people? Don't you guys have people to arrange this right. kind of thing? Why are you asking a nobody to do this? And there's like, well, no, Daniel, is a wonderful idea. Make it happen, you know, and. So I did. I, I I contacted some friends. I said, hey, I need to raise some money so we can have this. And the one thing that I was doing, Joel, was I need to here in Texas. We were going to have it here in Texas. And I says, well, we just need a place to have it. Where do I go? And so the uh, Anton suggested I look at a seminary. And so I poked around and, and landed at uh, Southwestern Baptist uh, randomly, just randomly just emailed uh, Paul Gould because he had a, a website with C.S. Lewis and apologetics. I'm like, oh, Dr. Gould would love this. And he did. We'd never met before. I didn't even know who Paul Gould was. And um, I met with him. We met for coffee at the seminary. I told him the idea and he just looked at me wide eyed like, are you kidding me? Uh, I said, all I want to do is have a place to have this. Can we use your auditorium or something? That's all I went to swibbets for Southwest. That's what we call Swibbets here in Texas, swibbets Southwestern Baptist. And uh, he said, like, yeah, let me uh, let me go knock on a door. And so Swibitz, uh gave us an auditorium. And then they actually became the nonprofit to where we could raise money for the donations for the event. And they became they gave us the auditorium and it was wonderful. And so when I'm coordinating this with Paul, um, Paul doesn't know me at at this time in my life. Joel. I had graduated, but I hadn't been a professor. I've never written anything. I haven't been published. I didn't have an I didn't have a manuscript. I didn't I didn't have an agent. Um, I didn't have any publication experience. And Paul just taps me on the shoulder and goes, Dan, we need to make a book of this. I said, I, what? No, and I actually turned him down. I said, Paul, I don't, I didn't know him. I thought he was just being nice. And uh, he said, no, I think this would be great. So I was, I thought about it for a couple of weeks. I'm like, dude, you're a dummy if you don't take advantage of this thing. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like a nobody. And Paul Gould is then. So I, I, Paul's like, yeah, I think I can get William Lane Craig in on this too. <laughs> to my jaw dropped. I'm like, Paul, you don't even know me. How would you think Bill Craig's going to be willing to be in a book with a, a dude that shops at Walmart? Um, I, I mean, I was <laughs> like, I can't believe this is happening. He's like, no, it'll, it'll be cool. I, I bet I can get him. And so I was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, yeah, well, think about it. And so through Michael Ward at, at, at Houston Baptist, where I was, I had several contacts that I thought, well, I could, I could, uh, I could. I could ask these people. And one of them was Holly Ordway, who was my uh, my other professor who helped me with my writing at HBU. And so through Holly and Michael, I had more connections. Um, I had the guy Consul Magno, uh David Bradstreet. Um, uh, Guillermo Gonzalez was just a random. I wonder if he has a public email. I wonder if he'd be interested in this. And so in a matter of days, Joel, we had our team and we shot out a couple of emails and everybody agreed. Um, we had to shuffle a few chess pieces because schedules and busyness and Dr. Kokomore couldn't do it because of his crazy schedule. But uh, we got 13 people together that wanted to do this. And uh, we sat down in Paul's office one afternoon. It took about an hour. We made a four page proposal and Paul took it off. He says, I'll get this done. And he took it to three publishers, just the proposal. And uh, the third one, Harvest House, uh, went with it. And that's and then here I was a, a contracted author nobody with uh, with names like like we've been talking about. It's just been a fantastic thing. So it was really sort of a haphazard, not haphazard, but it was just really sort of a last minute, hey, maybe I can get this guy. Maybe I can get this guy. Maybe I can get them. Maybe I can get them. And they all, everybody agreed. And uh, uh, Dr. Salviander, Sarah Salviander, uh, she's on Twitter, David Bradstreet, who teaches at uh, Eastern Pennsylvania University. I think that's the name of his school. He, he's a binary star expert. I, I met him through Michael Um, so we just had a wonderful team and they all said, yes. And so here we were basically, it was like my dream was coming true. I've always had a childhood dream of, of doing something with the universe. I just was never smart scientifically to be able to do something, but this is literally like something I've dreamed of since I was 12.
1: That's incredible how God worked that out. I mean, I'm listening to the way that this just worked out and the Lord just opened so many doors and, you know, um, a couple of believers like us, it's, it's normal to, to say things, you know, we, we prayed before we started and uh, you know, it, it's normal to talk about God and how God works things out. And, and one of the things that struck me as I'm reading the book is how, you know, it, it didn't, it, it felt very much like a work of faith. It felt like a work that as I'm reading it, I um, it, it it struck me as, let me put it this way, it struck me as being very unapologetically Christian in in its presentation. Mm -hmm. And um, as I'm, it would be very hard, I would imagine to even be an unbeliever, an atheist, a skeptic, and to read this book and to not walk away impressed by the faith of the authors, the confidence of the authors in the reality that, look, the heavens really do declare the glory of God. And I remember also, as I'm reading it, thinking, I've never really read another book like this. I've, you know, I've, of course, I've encountered the cosmological arguments and, and I, I've been watching apologetics debates for years and uh, even mm. participated in some interfaith dialogues and things like that. But when it comes to books and, you know, I guess the closest thing that it reminded me of is, is maybe one of these like four views, five views on, you know, there's mm. four views on eschatology or four views on the millennium. Mm. But but what you've done here is you've compiled a book. It's not four views. It's one view and it's like a diamond. I feel like I, feel like I was turning the the diamond and mm. based on, you know, which author and what their expertise was that I was reading, a different frequency of light and different colors were coming through the diamond as it was turning. But it was all the same diamond. It was mm. all from the presupposition of God's existence, the presupposition of biblical truth. Um, mm. Now I'm we we may have talked about this a little bit on Twitter but I'm coming from the from the perspective of as a presuppositionalist. And mm-hmm. so um you know my own personal story I used to listen to a lot of William Lane Craig um in years past uh now I listen to guys more like uh James White um mm-hmm. and so as I'm reading I'm I'm looking for you know the the different approaches that people are taking. Mm. Um and and you know I probably had a couple of um, moments in the book where I was reading it and thought, oh, you know, I probably would have worded that differently, or don't know if I would have phrased it that way. Mm. But there did seem to be remarkable harmony between the different authors, and um, wow. he, so there is a. It's I was struck by the uniqueness of the book and the harmony of of the book of the different articles. To your knowledge, is there another book like this? Is there, you know, this kind of compilation that? That's bringing together cosmology and apologetics and, you know, I guess you might call uh, artistic or cultural commentary.
0: Well, I, 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 we thought no, because uh, that was one of the things that went into the proposal that afternoon. I sat down when Paul and I were talking about this, we literally could say in our proposal that there was no other book like this out there. And that's not, wasn't patting ourselves on the back. Uh, That was literally just like the way it was. I mean, there, if you go into, the sort of, if you want to call it just the, the the Christian perspective on the universe, and you go through all the literature that's out there, uh, it's it's niche, narrow science. Um, there's not a broad. There's good science out there. I mean, I'm not disparaging the the Christians that are involved in the, the the scientific investigation of the of the cosmos, but it is just a lot of times it's just science, and it's not a broader perspective of okay, well this is great science, but how does this touch the guy down here? On the street. Uh, and I, I liked your analogy at the beginning of the podcast the, the idea you're walking down the street and you look up. Um, that's the kind of person that we, that's the kind of reaction, the kind of person, the kind of thought that we wanted to have presented to people. And so we did not think that there was this interdisciplinary sort of approach from a Christian perspective, ecumenical in its nature. Uh, Because we have Anglican, Catholic, uh, Presbyterian, Baptist, non denominational people represented, and we are all uh, in unison for the glory of God. Psalm 19 is our centerpiece. It is a focus on what uh, we as Christians would call general revelation. Um, It's not theologically heavy so that it would be off putting to anybody who is not a Christian. We tried to make it accessible for the unbeliever, and we tried to make it encouraging for the believer. Um, but we, we, we not only talk about the universe, but as you are describing, the underlying weaving of it is the, the different voices of the different perspectives of people who name the name of Jesus and who attest to the glory that uh, the psalmist attests to, David attests to in Psalm 19. So the only thing that Paul and I literally, and, and I, in all of my research in the five years that going all the way back to my master's degree, there's nothing like this from the church that I could compare this to other than Carl Sagan's Cosmos from 1980. I mean, this is, this seems to have that. I mean, we're not as probably not, I wouldn't say that we were as nearly comprehensive as Sagan is. I mean, if you read Cosmos, it's very dense, it's philosophical, it's theological, it's scientific. Uh, That's what Sagan's genius that he and his wife, Andrewian could could weave this narrative together along with Stephen Soder and the producers of that original series. So it's much more encyclopedic. Uh, in 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 their approach, we we don't come at it so densely, but we felt like at least we needed to to have the church respond in a very holistic uh, kind of way, setting aside the in-house debates of age and different philosophical and apologetic approaches to apologetics and the proclamation of the gospel and the technical sides of in-house uh, in-house methods of how we go about proclaiming Christ uh we set that aside and focused on we didn't try to prove god's existence we assumed it um we didn't we don't have the traditional philosophical or apologetic arguments that you might think would be in there though uh, Bill Craig, of course, is is classic William Lane Craig. He's, he's doing his thing. And uh, Dr. Luke Barnes is in there talking about fine-tuning. And, and uh, it, it, you know, so there, there are those things. And it would satisfy people that are interested in those things. But there's also art. There's also literature. Uh, there's also philosophy. There's history. Um, it's, it's a multifaceted approach that we think can speak to the whole person. And one of the wonderful miracles, I think, of the book was that we didn't sit down as a team across the table from one another and say, how are we going to do this? Paul and I just said, would you like to do it? We're talking about Psalm 19. Can you come up with something that you can think of along the lines of how you see the glory of God and what you do? That was it. And we got the essays and Paul and I didn't have to do much as far as editors goes because everybody's published except me. Um, and it was it was easy to edit. And so we edited everything. And then I wrote my introduction after we edited and I read and reread everybody's. And then I told the story Uh, Of everybody's essay rather than going uh, Bill says this and Holly says this and Melissa says this in chapter one, two, three or whatever. I took all of their stories and I put it into a story. So there's references both tacit and implicit, uh, explicit to all the chapters in my chapter. But I tie it together like a story rather than just saying, you know, in chapter seven, you'll read this. And so by the time you're done with my chapter, you're ready to start making those connections in the other chapters as well and seeing the cohesiveness.
1: Arguing for God, although you're you're right, um, William Lane Craig,
0: he does his thing. He does. We just
1: he let him go. His thing. <laughs> yes, he does. He does uh, his thing. But there is permeating throughout the book. There is the assumption, the implicit assumption, God does exist. Mm-hmm. Here's what His heavens are saying. So it's taking Psalm 19, verse one. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and it's and here's it's it's translating it for mm-hmm. the kid walking down the street, for the mm-hmm. the grandma taking you know walking your kids home from the park or the amateur mm. astronomer just bought his first telescope hey here's what the heavens are saying right about- we
0: just we're like the apollo guys i mean apollo was just 50 years ago this past yeah. weekend and we're just average guys as you see here uh neil and buzz and 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 michael uh in our in our casual dress casuals uh yeah. about, about ready to be going to the moon um, you know, in a couple of days, this image was taken a couple of days before launch. And uh, pretty soon, these men are atop a five-engine Saturn V rocket that's 363 feet tall. And they're uh, extraordinary achievement uh, using very ordinary men who are very knowledgeable. Uh, and after they returned from the moon, they went on a, a 45-day tour around the world. And for a couple of weeks in late summer of 1969, there was a kind of unity uh, among the nations uh, that... Uh, that God attests to in Psalm 19. You know, the line has gone out throughout the whole earth. And so whenever believers get together and can show some kind of unity, Joel, uh, that in and of itself is a powerful witness. It's something for which Jesus prayed in John, uh, you know, that they may be one as we are one, uh, and that the world will know that he loves us through the way in which we as a body in Christ are unified and so it wasn't an overt, explicit um, emphasis that we were going ecumenical style, but it just ended up being the spirit of the text, of the coming together, was part of the glory that God seems to have intended for us, though we didn't deliberately sit down and say, we, we have an ecumenical focus, we just got experts in their field who are Christians who love to talk about the universe. And it just came together so beautifully. And that's just an attestation, I think, of the way the Spirit works um, when we're focused on the glory of God.
1: And as you focus on the glory of God, as you focus on what the heavens say about the glory of God, um, there's, you mentioned the, the moon landing, which took place 50 years ago. As we're recording this, it was you know, the anniversary was a couple of days ago. And was it Neil Armstrong who... No, it was it was the chaplain. It was the Navy chaplain, I believe. I think it was on board of an aircraft carrier. They celebrated communion. Okay,
0: yeah, that that was uh, Buzz Aldrin. They may have done – I don't know if they did that on the Hornet. The Hornet was the pickup. Uh, okay. From, was that when it? they splashed down. Well, I don't know if they did communion on the Hornet, but I do know that Buzz Aldrin, uh, the lunar module pilot, he was the second man on the moon. He went to the moon with Armstrong. When um, before they got out, Aldrin took communion, administered communion to himself. Um, And uh, it was the first time, you know, (laughs) historic event. But Buzz was a a good Presbyterian. I don't know if he still is. I don't know what his uh, his current, you know, belief about God is. But when uh, the capsule landed shortly thereafter, I don't know exactly the time frame. uh, These images now are up on the screen. But what I'm showing are the the pocket, something on a notepad that Buzz Aldrin had written uh he couldn't take a Bible to the moon because of the weight limitations, but he he jotted down psalm eight three and john uh, fourteen six uh and then gave himself communion and read these words and you know the the, the verse from John, I am the vine, and you are the branches, and whoever remains in me and I in him will uh, bear much fruit, and for apart from me, you can do nothing um, and then in the psalm eight, when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon. And the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. And those were the verses that he read when he poured the wine and, and took took the communion uh in the lunar lander. Um, so that's that's probably what you're referring to. I don't I don't know if they celebrated communion on the on the Hornet or not, but uh, I knew it was done in the uh in the Eagle. On, uh, yeah,
1: that is exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, thank yes, you for yeah,
0: that. Yeah. Uh-huh. How
1: cool is it that you have the images of those are his handwritten
0: Handwritten notes. notes. I don't know where... I think they're in the Smithsonian. I don't know where they are. I don't know what the status is, but you can go online and and see Buzz Aldrin's uh, pocket notes on the scriptures.
1: All right. Well, this this is striking to me because here you've got a man who walked on the moon, who saw the the cosmos. I keep saying cosmos and my inner Greek student is tapping me on the shoulder saying, it's cosmos. It's cosmos. Sure. Um, So... I'm going to say cosmos just for consistency, but <laughs>
0: that's fine. That's what we all do.
1: Yeah. The, 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 his faith of course prompted him to write those Bible verses. I did hear the recording a couple of days ago where he read from Psalm eight. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the, the awe and the wonder in his own, in his voice. And you can, you can hear his sense of it's this balance, isn't it between human, tininess and insignificance on a cosmic scale and yet gratitude that God is mindful of us. I mean, you can hear that in the psalmist in Psalm. Right.
0: Eight. Right. You and know. I think you make an interesting point there, Joel, that I think is lost in the dialogue between science and religion in general. Uh, the point of significance, because David is pondering that in Psalm eight. Um, but when you hear the the word significance in modern cosmology and modern astronomy, what they're doing is they're, they're looking at, you know, there's, there's no question That that we as human beings are small in relation to the cosmos. That's a foregone conclusion. That's obvious. But what what is deduced in modern cosmology and modern astronomy and, and modern secular materialism is that we as human beings are insignificant because we are small. That is not a scientific conclusion. And that is not borne out by the empirical evidence of science. Because we're small does not mean that we are insignificant. Hence, David's con- confession in Psalm 8,
1: on page 7 of the story of the cosmos, and, and this is in the section, chapter 1, increasingly, it seems the formal sciences of the universe now explain everything with little or no reference to God and his glory. We've been told by the brightest minds that we inhabit, quote, an insignificant planet orbiting a nondescript star, end quote. Mm. We have been, quote, dethroned, end quote, and now most hum- uh, must humbly come to grips with our, quote, insignificance in relation to the rest of the universe, end quote. And then mm. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a popular as- astrophysicist, believes man to be cosmically, quote, insignificant. Carl Sagan said that we are inconsequential and called this a thin film of life on an obscure and solitary lump of rock and metal. So you've got... Yes. Um, All right, so it's so interesting to see the biblical view of man's tininess, and therefore the awe over God having imbued man with significance, versus Mm -hmm. the atheistic parody of that, Mm -hmm. and it's an attempt to recognize our place in the universe but without god they're you know in a sense they're right that without god there is no significance we are meaningless
0: right right and then
1: presuppose god
0: it's it's but it's uh it's contradictory joel because it's an is ont fallacy with the atheist c- conclusions because they right. the universe doesn't tell you whether or not in a purely materialistic universe where there's no mind no god uh, no creator you don't get insignificance from the cosmos, you are interpreting that. So it's not even consistently scientific to say that we are insignificant. Uh, that's a philosophical, metaphysical conclusion, assumption, presupposition, if you will, uh, to deduce. But but the stars, the moon, the universe, galaxies, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field—they don't all point fingers at us and say we're insignificant. That's that's ourselves doing it to ourselves. And right. but you know, as Christians, who is constantly behind uh, the the denigration of man? Not just man we don 't wrestle with flesh and blood, but what principalities and powers that are in heavenly places so there 's sort of a guardian of the moat that that wants to to, to continue to destroy us I mean first peter right uh, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, and so behind this so so it 's almost like the devil has a you know, I'm not attributing all scientists to, to demon worshipers or devil worshipers. I'm not saying that, but, but behind the materialistic science is this effort to demote, continually demote and to remind people uh, that we are nothing, that we are in, inconsequential. We are insignificant. We don't matter. And we wonder then why, for example, the suicide rate in the United States on average, I, you, may, you may be familiar with this statistic, um, on average, a capacity crowd at Wrigley field every year takes their life. Uh, that was a 2012 statistic that I came across in my research, but that's, that's the suicide rate in just the United States.
1: Right. And, and that rate is on the rise too. It is. It is.
0: And, and so you, you know, Anthony Bourdain, everybody's shocked. How could a guy on top of the world mm. with such renown, uh, with such a cool show. How could a guy like that end up in, in, in that position? Um, but there's no there's see the, the, the other problem with the sec, secular scientific materialism is they, too, Joel, will will acknowledge the awe and the wonder. Sagan does, does this. Tyson does it. Uh, they, they think that, OK, you've just demoted me to, to thin film. You've just told me I'm an insignificant slime. But now you turn around and tell me that I'm supposed to be awestruck and humble and in wonder of this cosmos that doesn't care about me and that wants to kill me how can I derive awe and wonder on the one hand and be told I'm just mud on the other hand, it's a very inconsistent dialectical tension uh, for the soul of human beings to, to be in that position and to have no answer for why the universe is so beautiful and awe inspiring. And yet it seemingly wants to kill us and seems so haphazard. Um, It's just, it's, it's a giant uh, problem that I think when you go to like local astronomy clubs and you see like a couple of weekends ago in June, Uh, The Grand Canyon has an annual uh, astronomy uh, weekend, and it's packed. They have people out in the parking lots. It's a dark sky park, uh, and and hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, attend these things uh, because they're hungry to see the beauty of the universe. But what's missing, Joel, is what it all means. Um, New York Times just ran an article about this on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo talking about what is what What are the heavens? Why do we go there? What are we looking at? What are we trying to do? How how can we derive meaning from this? And our book is, I think it, it's, it's going to fill that void. I mean, not everybody's going to embrace it, but we certainly do try to make that reconnection. It's a Romans 12 sort of thing, renewing the mind, reorienting yourself, reminding yourself of the fixed order and the beauty and the glory that is in the heavens. Um, and I've been talking about this in Sunday school, I've been teaching Sunday school this summer, talking about how we go from general to special revelation and how Jesus was constantly using metaphors and similes and parables from nature. And uh, we're cut off from 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 the universe, almost so that we can't use these examples uh, from the sky in the proclamation of the gospel. But I, I absolutely think that we must, and we can, and we should. And that's why we wrote this book.
1: You know, it's a fascinating perspective, the idea that, even in astronomy, there is no neutrality in the sense that astronomy is either being done to the glory of God, or it's not, I mean, it's in the one sense, it is being done to the glory of man, but really the conclusions that they're reaching is it's not glorifying to man, other than the fact that, you know, we believe this, or, or, uh, you know, an atheistic astronomer would believe that, as you pointed out, the idea is that we're this thin film of life and yet the thin film of life supposedly has everything figured out. You know, we've, right. we're, we, we're, we're able to, based on our very limited perspective on the universe, we're able to figure it all out and, and yeah. Yeah. determine our own significance. But, but ultimately it is a space, forgive the, the <laughs> term where there is spiritual warfare being played out. And, oh
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And in, in the heavens, in the, in the the cosmos, I mean, we would expect, I mean, just like anywhere else, whether it's the church or the workplace or, or uh, you know, the, the the marriage bed, anywhere else, there's going to be spiritual implications to it. There's going to be mm. spiritual realities at play. I hadn't really thought about that before. How?
0: Yeah, it's Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah six. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's right. That's right. I mean, and and Jesus goes all the way down to the lilies of the field to make an analogy of his glory, Um, that there's more glory in a lily than there is in all the pomp and circumstance of Solomon's Sunday best. And, you know, Jesus, think of all the nature metaphors that Jesus uses. I am the bread. I'm the rock. I'm the light of the world. I'm, I'm the, the vine. My father is the vine dresser, Um, stones, birds. There's, there's, there's nothing off limits to the things that Jesus would refer to in nature I mean, even he calls himself when he's revealing himself to John on Patmos, he says, I am the bright and morning star. And when Balaam is prophesying for Balak in Numbers twenty-four seventeen, he sees a star, the star of Jacob. Um, and in Matthew, when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, uh, he says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. And uh, it's plural in the Greek. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why English translators translate it that way. but. Right. The the heavens in the in the Old Testament is always plural shemaim, and so Matthew's gospel to the to 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 emphasize this he said the kingdom of the shemaim the kingdom of the heavens is here one greater the one who made the heavens is down here with you and and talking to you and speaking with you and then he turns around remarkably in Matthew five and fourteen through sixteen he's, Jesus says to us you are the light of the world. So let your light so shine before men that you may glorify your, uh, that, that, that may see your good works and that they may glorify your father who is in the heavens. And this goes back to, to Daniel in Daniel twelve three where Daniel says, those who turn many to righteousness are like the stars that shine forever and ever. So, so Joel, it, it, you know, it's interesting in the, in the secular materialism, Carl Sagan popularized this idea that we were star stuff. You know, that comes from the idea that, well, there's carbon in our bodies and there's carbon in our suns. And since there is no God, we need a carbon maker. And the only carbon maker that secular materialists can come up with are supernova suns. When suns go kaboom, they fuse and make carbon and that must be where our carbon came from. Now it's true that there's carbon in the suns and there's carbon in our bodies, but it's not true uh, and no one's ever proved the direct line from an ex- supernova to human sentience. I mean, how did carbon get in our bodies? Nobody has an explanation for that. Right. Um but but it is akin to, you know, Sagan would say we were star stuff. But really it's kind of parallel to what to what scripture does say to us. We are like stars, Joel, if you go to uh, Genesis 15:5 uh, where I love that passage where Jesus takes, uh, you know, pre-incarnate Yahweh takes Abraham outside or Abraham at the time. And he says, uh, he shows him the stars and he says, count the stars if you're able. Your generations, your progeny are going to be like that. And he's, you know, outside in the desert, wherever they are, looking at the complete dark skies. And Jesus is telling Abraham his descendants will be as numerous. And as we get the New Testament, as luminous as the stars in the sky. Um, and then Isaiah forty twenty six, where it talks about Isaiah's reminding Israel, you forgot, Jacob, Israel, why do you say your way is hidden from me? I name all the stars. I created all the stars. Not one of them is missing. So why, Jacob, do you think and why, oh, Israel, do you think that I don't see you? Um, and so the universe is a, is a You know Jeremiah 31 with with God talking through the prophet. Uh, to Israel about the new covenant, God likens His new covenant, uh, Jesus, to to the fixed order of the heavens. Joel, so there's, it's so rich with metaphor and and truth and beauty, and like you said at the beginning of the podcast, awe and wonder and a, and a kind of a holy fear and a kind of terror uh, that that it invokes when you really contemplate it. There's a Native American legend uh, that I have here up on the screen that I ran across a couple of days ago, and uh, it's uh, about a story about a coyote. Uh, talking to Meadowlark, a bird, you know, the animals are personified here. And the coyote says, uh, my brother, when I am gone, tell everyone that when they look up into the sky and see the stars arranged this way, that I was the one who did that. That is my work. And it's interesting that this Native American tale is more closer to the truth of what scripture reveals than what modern science reveals about the stars. They are the handiwork of a creator. Um, and And the ancient cultures Understood this. The, the 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 foundations of our Western scientific intellect understood this. That's the bedrock of how we understand the stars and how we know anything scientifically about the universe. Is because some brave men who were faithful in the midst of uh, you know Reformation and Counter Reformation, including Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. Uh, Galileo, the the persecution that he endured, um, th- these men stood fast on their faith and stood fast in what the, they were revealing. And and it was because of their pioneering efforts that we understand the universe is intelligible. And we continue to ins- assume the intelligibility of the universe, but science itself has no fundamental explanation for why the universe is so intelligible. And that's what bothered Einstein. It's like, why, why how is it so wonderful that we can even know the universe
1: at all? Right. And to your point about how we shine like stars or or how we are luminary like the the lights in the heavens, it made me think of Philippians 2.15. Oh, yes, up. yes, yes. And actually in verse 14, it says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine as lights in the world. And that word in the Koine Greek is the word for lights is the same word used in the Septuagint, I believe, for when mm. God created the lights in the heavenlies. And mm-hmm. so we, as as the lights in the heavenlies give lights on the earth, we're supposed to be an analogous source of light, a spiritual light here in the world. And yeah, and that, that, that's that's so that's true,
0: and that's so there. wonderful. That's a, you know, and that's that's one of the things that. Uh, I did in church last Sunday in my Sunday school class. I asked, we got a we got a pretty small congregation of of conservative Presbyterians that I am a part of a little country church and they're wonderful people. I love it. It's biblical centered and the word is the center of worship. And so anyway, very knowledgeable, smart people. Uh, and I asked them, I said, guys, so what's a star? Very simple question, right? And they're all kind of chuckling like, uh, well, you know, and so everybody was like giving me science answers. And I stopped and I said, okay, now did you hear what you all said, right? Look how quickly... You answered that question with science, and I just use that point to 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 point to pinpoint how pervasive a scientific ethos is in our culture today. That we would immediately go to a, a plasma, uh, you know, plasma gas, uh, giant nuclear fusion going on, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. But that was the first answer that we were all giving, uh, a scientific one. And so I went back into the scriptures and I said, well. You know, I just asked the question very gently, why aren't we starting with what scripture says stars are um uh, and going from that because that 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 definition of of a star it's so poetic, it's so rich, it's there for the metaphorical comparisons that you make, even Paul uses stars uh, you're probably familiar in first corinthians fifteen forty one uh, where he's talking about the resurrection in the context of the passage, and he's saying, you know different right. bodies right, and a star differs from star in glory and so The heavens are rich for this. And uh, so what we do in the book, like Psalm 102, 25, there on page 11 in the book, I quote, um, of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works are the work of thy hands. And I compared the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, those galaxies that look like little jewels on black velvet. And I said, uh, you know, you think of God as, as a as a as a smithy, right, as a as a, somebody forging uh, iron and things. And, and I quote a line from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, uh, his poem about a village blacksmith. And, uh, you know, it says as and children coming home from school, look in at the open door. They love to see the flaming forge and hear the bellows roar and catch the burning sparks that fly like chaff from a threshing floor. And that's one thing, Joel, that I think is missing in the apologetic dialogue that we have today that part of our book wanted to address was the imaginative side of evangelism and apologetics and argument with unbelievers. Because as you've probably been aware and as I've been aware in the last five years, when you talk to atheists and skeptics, you rarely trade in any sort of referent to humanities, art, music, literature, poetry beauty the, the 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 philosophy of beauty and aesthetics and things this is completely almost completely missing uh, from the do, uh, from from the dialogue as if imagination is somehow more tainted uh, because of the fall than reason. We somehow think that reason is like the clear distilled liquid and, and imagination is just cloudy and muddy and messy um, but but why should reason be any less subjected to the noetic effects of sin than the imagination is, and so we we address also the need to uh, the very real need to address the imagination and to think imaginatively because our culture runs to movie theaters. We run to baseball events. We run to football events. We are in front of our televisions watching binge watching Netflix. We are we want stories. We want stories that connect. We don't want just rational arguments. There's nothing wrong with those. But we man cannot live on rational argument alone. Uh, we, We must have beauty and we must have wonder and awe and that's missing from from a lot of the apologetics that i've seen and been involved with and so we hope to sort
1: of bring that back as well well the the theme of reenchanting the cosmos kept coming to my mind and it's coming to my mind even now as we speak and you know you you listen to cs lewis and uh tolkien talk about how the the gospel and the biblical story is the true myth and mm. and how it's it, it's sort of the archetype of of all other Myths which sort of approximate its truths. And, you know, you mentioned Kepler earlier. Mm -hmm. We haven't really gotten into it, and I don't know if we'll have time, but when you referred to the founding fathers of modern science, Mm. I mean, no name stands as tall as Kepler, uh, Johannes Kepler. And I was fascinated to learn on page 29 in Melissa Kane Travis's chapter where she talks about how Kepler had this explanation of this tripartite harmony to use her phrase, Uh divine archetype material copy and the image of God in man. And if I could try to do a rough summary of this, you've got the mind of God in which the, the truth and the, the rational basis uh, you know, let's say the, the mathematical and, and even, even the, the storied basis for everything that's going to happen in the cosmos exists. It all begins in the mind of God. Yeah. The and Logos. He, we
0: could go with the Logos there. With,
1: with the Logos. Thank you. That That's perfect. Yeah. The perfect mm-hmm. term for it. Mm-hmm. And then by the Logos, you know, by the word of God, which we now know uh, incarnate as the son of God, but God creates by his word and he creates in creation, the, the copy, the material energetic copy of what the, of the pattern that was in his mind. Mm-hmm. And, And then you've got the corresponding, um, the the third component of the tripartite um, scheme in the mind of man. And so man made in the image of God is able to look at the copy that's created in the the cosmos and is able to learn and, and, and understand something of the mind of God through the creation. And so I've been working on different apologetic arguments. And and one of my favorite ones, I mean, I didn't originate this of course, but Mm -hmm. my favorite arguments is a a presuppositional argument from science. The very fact that science is possible presupposes God and proves and proves that God exists. But Mm -hmm. the way that Melissa Kane Travis explains Kepler's view of this relationship between archetype material copy and uh, the Imago Dei, I just thought that was brilliant and- yeah, that's
0: her doctorate, the doctoral thesis that she just completed, and she's shopping it around for a publisher right now. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, she loves Kepler, and that's where she's, she's, she shares your passion there. I can hear she's, she's right on. It's fascinating. We saw her present that, uh, last week at the book, uh, when we did our book launch. Just an awesome, absolutely awesome, uh, uh, foundational, uh presupposition to have in, in that, 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 that triune. And it represents the, the, the triune nature of God himself.
1: Right. Yes. Exactly. And um, I don't know. Have you read any John Frame at all as a good Presbyterian? Yes. Yes, I have. You've encountered so. So I'm sure you're familiar with his triperspectivalism, and you know he he is is famous for his triads and and how um, so many different Mm -hmm. triads in nature and and in in philosophy and in the thought world and the material world they really they do point back to the triune nature of God. Mm -hmm. And I saw that. I saw that in. Melissa cain Travis's article. It, yeah,
0: it, it, it is me. absolutely a, a fingerprint, a, a divine uh, imagio day, uh, an artist's signature on everything by which we are surrounded in in the material world, um, and even in the non-material world. The that's right. The, the essence of threes, and that was another underlying theme of our book: uh, this this coming together of unique things, like ultimately God and man, uh, the heavens and the earth, man and male and female. Uh, sin and redemption. Uh, you know, the, the, these we we <laughs> we didn't aim for it, but we ended up with this underlying theme of dancing um, and unity and beauty. Uh, David Bradstreet's chapter, sort of, I would say, would probably be the genesis of where all this came from because he talks about binary stars. And uh, you mentioned earlier the reference to the to our sun being ordinary. Well, Dr. Bradstreet argues that it's not simply on the basis of. The fact that it is in a minority of stars that are, that have no companion. So the consensus varies on this, but Dr. Bradstreet's current research, he's been studying binary stars for decades. um, Majority of stars in our universe have at least one companion, 60 to 70% of the stars in the universe have at least another companion and they orbit one another. So in, in that field, our sun is in the 40% minority of stars that are bachelors. If you want to go there, um, and then, and, and just but this idea of dancing of these things coming together, uh, unlike things, uh, God bringing people together, uh, just the beauty and truth, reason and imagination, all of these things fit together, and and we have to begin to I think Joel address when we do apologetics to address it holistically, and to be more to make more of a concerted effort to unite things and to think more. Uh, it, with more integration than just this niche specialist disciplines that we're so used to, we need to go to a philosopher for philosophy. We need to go to a historian for history, and we're just so broken up and fragmented that we can't see that it was like the diamond you explained earlier was sort of crushed, and we're trying to look at the trying to imagine the diamond through pieces rather than having the whole thing in front of us. And so we we need to at least for me my passion is to be more um, interdisciplinary. Uh, to be a good generalist, we have a lot of good specialists, and specialists are needed. You know, if I'm going to go get my car fixed, I'm still going to an auto mechanic and not somebody who cooks hamburgers. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with specialization. But what we need are people that can talk to each other through specialization, that, that specializations can come together and see what they can learn from one another. Uh, and that was Sagan's genius because he studied, actually, you'll appreciate this. He was at the University of Chicago in the 50s when they implemented the great book. Great Books program, and they called it the—I uh, forgot what the name of the program was—the Hutchins program. Uh, Sagan didn't—I don't think he actually enrolled in the program. He was at the University of Chicago, but it basically was from a, a, a chemist, I believe, C.P. Snow, who recognized this problem in the 40s and 50s—that that at the university level, the philosophers weren't talking to the to the literary scholars, and the scientists weren't talking to 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 the artists. And the chemists weren't talking to the physicists, and the physicists weren't talking to the to the biologists. And there was just this, you know, over here they don't even know what Pride and Prejudice is, but they know all about bacteria. But the folks that know about bacteria don't know anything about stars, and and nobody was talking to each other. And so there was this emphasis to to reunite and to do an interdisciplinary sort of thought process. And Sagan was very much there at the genesis of this at the University of Chicago. And without that uh, association, the uh, Sagan's biographer. Uh, Key Davidson argues that there would not have been a Carl Sagan cosmos without what he saw at the University of Chicago. So we as Christians have to go back and begin to connect things that have been disconnected, reconnection, recreating, renewing our minds, as Romans 12 says, seeing everything, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I used to think that was a killjoy verse, but I don't anymore because taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ helps you to see creation far more clearly because you're bringing in other facets of things, as you said so earlier. Uh, And that's what we need to continue to do is to emphasize the integration.
1: So when Christians hear this, And they get excited about the cosmos and they, they order your book, the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, which I know you can get on Amazon, which I also know had a a wonderful debut. It was, it was the number one in its category when it came out. And uh, that was very exciting. So, so so they order your book, they read it, they get excited about um, how the heavens declare the glory of God, and they want to take their study further. Mm. Daniel, Give them some recommendations. What what should they be reading? What should they be listening to? What should they be watching?
0: Well, if if this fascinates you, um, there's a couple of books that I will recommend by a couple of our authors that will whet your appetite even further about this idea of integration and beauty and reason and imagination. Uh, the first would be uh, Dr. Ward's shorter work on the, called The Narnia Code, which is a sort of a broken down, uh, distilled uh, version of Planet Narnia. And that'll get your imaginative juices going if you love Lewis. Um, Holly Ordway has written a book on the imagination and apologetics uh, that came out a year or two ago. Uh, fascinating. And, you know, HBU, Houston Baptist University, where I was, is, is teaching this. It's on the forefront of reason and imagination and apologetic integration. Um, and there is a online journal now from a lot of my former classmates, um, that I studied with, uh, five years ago, uh, called the, an, an unexpected journal. And it's uh former current and former students of the HBU program. Uh, and it's not just limited to them, but, but that's, th- th- this is an effort. We all graduated the program and thought, well, what do we do now? We got to do something. I mean, it's that good. And so we're everybody that has launched out of that program has been involved with, I have a friend who is uh, a contributing author to the recent, uh, mama bear apologetics book, uh, Rebecca Valerius has written several chapters and she was a classmate of mine and she's in that book with Hillary Morgan Ferrar. Um, and uh, my friend Zach started the, uh, an unexpected journal. And it's just, it's just an in-depth, wonderful, accessible, uh, essays on reason and imagination and integration. And, and it's very lay level stuff. I mean, there's, there's some good stuff in there. And so those are three sources where you can start, um, you know, and I, I i would I would also say find you know in terms of having a, a a personal encounter with nature, that's what we need to do again, too. It's not just reading books and reading stuff online. go out into the forest, go find a dark sky park, look up the International dark Sky Association and find dark sky parks near your area where it's literally a gold tier dark sky, no light pollution park. Uh, my friend Sarah runs the website savingourstars.org. And Sarah, has she does it all for free. She doesn't make any money from this. She's not selling anything. It's all free resources for you to go get yourself in the body, outside, away from a screen, into a dark sky park, and marvel at the heavens. Uh, So that needs to be done. If you want to just kind of get a cursory backyard familiarity with, with the universe, I recommend a wonderful software program for your laptop called Stellarium with two L's, Stellarium.org. It's a free software program. It runs on your laptop and it gives you the stars over your backyard. And you can, I mean, f- there's phone apps that you can do this with as well. Uh, but what I think we really need to do, Joel, is to, to re-encounter Christ again, uh, to reencounter nature as it reveals Jesus, and then to get ourselves out, like you said at the beginning, to get ourselves out underneath the sky and contemplate, like David did in Psalm 8, and get away from, from as, as the, the call in Revelation, to come out from, from the metropolis, come out from the mother city and get out under the glory of God and see it afresh once more. So those would be some places where I would recommend starting to stir your imagination and, and recapture and refamiliarize yourself with, with wonder. And then if you're really into it, go out and buy a telescope <laughs> like I did.
1: Wonderful. Daniel, if folks want to get in touch with you or follow along with your work so that they, they know when your next book's going to come out. And yes, I'm putting you on the spot there because we need another one. We need, we need part two, but Uh, how can uh, people, how can people get in touch with you? Follow along with your stuff?
0: Well, I'm mostly active. Um, I represent myself though. I fly the banner of the book on Twitter. I'm at story underscore at story underscore cosmos. And I'm pretty active on Twitter right now. Um, And daily I engage with atheists who are civil and, like to chat. Uh, I love to be funny and cute and humorous and talk about the book. And uh, so I'm there on Twitter. I also have a podcast uh, on Patreon called Good Heavens with an exclamation point, a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Um, And I'm accessible there. And uh, through both of those pages, you can get in direct contact with me if you if you're interested. And I'm. I'm uh, open right now, as my co-editor Paul Gould is, to more um, speaking engagements or more online dialogue. If you'd like to do that, I'm open for those as well.
1: Wonderful, uh, Daniel. Anything else you w- you'd like to leave our listeners with before we wrap up?
0: No, I, I just uh, I hope you guys in Chicago could could get out from underneath the the, the towering heights of the Windy City and find some stars.
1: <laughs> you know, I, there's this podcast out here called Curious City. And they answer all kinds of Chicagoan questions about the city. And one of the questions, Uh is there any place where you can actually see the stars? Um, And the closest thing that they came to a dark sky was in the smack middle of Lake Michigan. If you go out in a boat, it's, I don't know how many, 25 miles out. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the closest thing you can get to a dark sky. And even there, the glow from the city pollutes the light. So you, you can't really truly get, a dark sky. I remember being a kid going out to visit relatives out in, in, uh, Iowa. And, mm-hmm. uh, I had to go all the way out into Iowa in order to see. And I was just, I was amazed by the, there, there actually is such a thing as a Milky Way. It doesn't just exist in pictures.
0: Oh yes. We were, uh, my friend Sarah and I and her mom uh, a couple of weeks ago, were out in, uh, a, an official dark sky park in, um, near Quanah, Texas, near the Texas, Oklahoma border. And it is a gold tier, the darkest of dark skies. Um, and, I brought my telescope, Joel, but I didn't even use it really because I was so enamored and I've been looking at the stars for a long time. I was so enamored, never been under a dark sky like that before in my life that I can recall. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And the Milky Way was so bright, Joel, that it looked like uh, looked like clouds. I mean, it looked like uh, clouds were rolling in uh, from the uh, eastern horizon uh, as as the sun went down. And it, it was phenomenal and it is so worth going to find um where the where these parks are. Um but I know in Chicago there's such there's such a difficult I don't you'd have to go on the um International Dark Sky Association to find uh, the actual dark sky parks that would be anywhere in and around. They're harder to find in and around big cities, of course. Sure. Uh, so, um, and one last shout out, just want to show you just really quickly how the heavens are uh, for all of our, our watching viewers. I, I'm putting now up a screen on the, this, this is the star cluster. Now the Pleiades that you can see rising before dawn right now in, uh, in the summertime, in the late summer, early fall, this is coming up before the sun. This is the star cluster of the Pleiades. Uh, some of you may be uh, people who drive, um, Subaru. Have you ever seen the Subaru emblem? That is what the star cluster of the Pleiades is. And Subaru means, in Japanese, it means unity. And so these are the six visible stars you can see from the ground. Atlas, Alcyon, Marope, Electra, Maia, and Tegeta. Um, these are the, the emblem, the chosen emblem for the, 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 uh, the star cluster on the, on the car, the Subaru car. But I, I talk about this in my chapter because because of the unity. Because when there's unity, there's beauty. And uh, there's unity in our authorship. There's unity that we have toward the glory of God as Christians. And when we are unified, uh, God is glorified. And that is uh, so, you know, there's, the heavens are still speaking to us. We just have to s- sort of start to listen again. Um, and if we do, it will be, it will be awesome. I just think there'll be a, there's a renaissance um, that I think is, is on its way, Joel, if we can get more uh, people uh, thinking more Christologically about nature.
1: Amen, Daniel. Thank you so much for that. And the invitation for you to come out to Chicago still stands. We could have this. We could have another conversation. I don't know how long we've been talking. An hour. Yeah, ago.
0: I have friends in. Uh, I have friends in Moni. So I'm Moni, okay. um, and uh, I, Sheila and Tim are great. Uh, Tim's a podiatrist, and uh, they they they're wonderful people. And I love going out there. And whenever Southwest has tickets for cheap, I'm I'm there. So uh, as soon as I do know when I'm getting there, Joel, I probably will be there before fall. OK, uh, so I'll let you, I'll let you know.
1: Yeah, let me know. And we'll, we'll get something going for you. We'll get you an audience and and get you up on stage to talk about this stuff. So woot! all right. <laughs> well, my guest today has been Daniel Ray. His book is The Story of the Cosmos, How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God. You can pick that up on Amazon. Well worth the very few dollars you have to pay to get this book. It is a fantastic read. It's revolutionary. Check it out. And, um, if you want to follow along with us, you can go to on Twitter at thinkinst, T-H-I-N-K-I-N-S-T on Facebook and Instagram. It's at the think Institute. You can listen to the think podcast every week on your favorite podcast app. And of course, for more great content, articles, apologetic arguments, worldview equipping, go to truthinconversation.com. That's our website I'm Joel Sedeckes. This has been the Think Podcast. Until next time, I hope it made you think.